hello again. You'll no doubt notice that the scenery has changed in my background. My family is moving in a few weeks from now and I've had to pack all of my books. <laughs> I've just got this, this small pile left for now, but before the series is over, you'll hopefully see my library in its resurrection state. Uh, and speaking of resurrection, today we're looking at chapter five of Miracles by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I said at the end of the last discussion that Lewis in these chapters is playing with some medieval toys here. Just to, to draw out that idea a little, I'm going to repeat what I said at the end of last time a bit in different language. Uh, medieval philosophers used to talk about the, the, the transcendental properties of being. And that's kind of a mouthful and sounds a bit too fancy, perhaps. But the, the basic idea of the transcendental properties of being is that these are the things that we can say of all real beings. So whatever exists, whatever has being, has these properties. Um, so, so it's obviously can't be that, that being blue or, or wearing glasses is a transcendental property of being because it's, it's possible to exist, presumably, without being blue or without wearing glasses. <laughs> so, so what are the transcendental properties of being then? Three, three common contenders for transcendental properties of being, and this is a discussion that goes all the way back to Plato and maybe even before, but three common contenders are that uh, transcendental properties of being, things that we can say of all real beings, are that all real beings uh, have unity, uh, that they participate in truth, and that they're good in some way, or participate in goodness might be another way of saying that. All real beings then have a, a principle of unity, even if they're composed of parts, there's something that, that makes them a, a single thing. Uh, all real beings participate in truth through their availability, their availability to the mind of a knower. The world is, is maybe fitted, you might say, to be known by the intelligent mind. And so all beings are understandable. Perhaps understanding some things, of course, requires a higher minds than our own. But, but all, all, all real beings are, in principle, understandable. Similarly, as, as created structures, all things participate in goodness. Now, here's the, here's the funky thing about transcendental properties. These terms function as kind of two-way mirrors between God and creation. You know, wearing glasses doesn't. Uh, you know, the fact that some things wear glasses uh, doesn't say a whole lot, at least very directly, about God. But these terms function as a kind of two-way mirror between God and creature. So, so God and creation. So just as a creaturely kind of being is suspended in God's divine being, so the unity of creation and of all things within creation is suspended in the unity of God. Similarly, that the truth in which all things participate is suspended in the truth that just is God, who, who, is, who is being himself. Uh, and, and again, moving on, the goodness of created things is suspended in the goodness of God himself uh, as a kind of finite echo or reflection of God's absolute goodness. And this is obviously not all that we can say about God, but, but it's helpful, right? You know, God is the supreme truth. He who has being in himself, he whose unity is deeper than the unity of created things, he whose goodness is the origin of all created reflections of that goodness. The being of God, which is just to say God, <laughs> is one true and good. This language perhaps just in a way kind of formalizes what are some pretty basic things we tend to think about God when we're trying to understand him. But, but let's talk about that two-way mirror image for a second. This connects to Lewis's argument because he's trying to get us to see that there are certain things about nature that are linked, as it were, to supernature. Reason is in creation, but not of creation. 
creation is of it. Uh, we mentioned that last time. The mind of man is that faculty that finds itself knowing truth in nature. And as the mind ascends away from trivial to deeper truths, the mind finally lands on truth itself or, or truth himself uh, to, to give it away there. That is to say the mind, that is to say when the mind is unimpeded by sin and error as ours tends to be. So similarly though, the, the will of man is that faculty which finds itself desiring the good in nature. Our desires are finite and embodied, uh, but the good is not of nature, just as, just as with truth or, or capital R reason, nature is of God's goodwill in union with God's mind. And similarly with the ascent of the mind through truth, so the will ascends through desire. As we will the good in all things when we pursue them, when a certain relationship with various beings is the, is the object of desire in life for us, and as we grow deeper in those desires and desire, begin to desire the desire behind the desire, if you will, we move toward he who is goodness himself, the desire of all desires, if you will. Again, when unimpeded by sin or corrupted value, as again, we tend to be. <laughs> we, but nevertheless, uh, especially as we're restored through the gospel, we learn to ache for God's goodness in the mirror of created things. Um, and so you can see the similarity between what Lewis is doing and what the medievals were doing. And in, in, in the last few chapters, he's been talking about the kind of two-way mirror of reason. The mind of man through reason moves along the track of truth and finds that this track moves from inside to outside of nature. In this chapter, uh, in chapter five, he'll discuss the two-way mirror of man's relationship to the good. There's, there's some dissimilarities here between Lewis and the medievals, because Lewis is playing with fairly popular and modern terms in some cases. But I think this particular medieval vision, which I've mentioned here, animates his philosophy in these chapters. His, his basic idea is that in this chapter is that the will of man through the conscience moves along the track of perceived goodness and finds this track moving as well from inside nature to outside of it. And so let's see how Lewis makes that case. Lewis observes, first of all, that just as men reason about matters of fact, we also find that men make moral judgments. So in former chapters, we talked about matter, matters of fact, and now we're talking about the fact that men make moral judgments. You know, I ought to do this. She ought not to do that. This is good. That's evil. Uh, some people think that such judgments are accomplished through a, through a faculty distinct from what enables us to reason, while, while others think that just such judgments are just a kind of special species of reason. That is to say, we, we, we just see, uh, says Lewis, that certain things are true, two and two make four, in the same way that we just see that certain things are morally correct. You know, don't hurt children, generally speaking. You know, we don't prove these things because they're the basis upon which we prove other things. Why shouldn't you do that? Because it hurts the kids and you shouldn't hurt the kids, generally speaking. <laughs> Nevertheless, says Lewis, it doesn't, it doesn't matter which of these views you hold for his purpose, whether a, a special species of reason or something else, he wants to show that moral judgments raise or eventually raise the same kinds of difficulties for naturalism as does the process of reasoning. And, and so how does Lewis argue this? First, just as in the case of reason, Lewis writes, quote, we always assume in discussions about morality, as in all other discussions, that the other man's views are worthless if they can be fully accounted for by some non-moral and non-rational cause, end quote. 
Uh, he writes later, quote, no one in real life pays attention to any moral judgment which can be shown to spring from non-moral and non-rational causes. The Freudian and the Marxist attack traditional morality precisely on this ground and with, and with, 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 uh, and with success. All men accept the principle, end quote. Uh, this is a fun and fascinating comment. What Lewis is saying is that whatever we actually claim, we all accept that morality, which is reducible to one's context, isn't worth very much. You know, he only thinks that way because he's a millionaire, because he's poor. If, if felt to be a plausible interpretation of something takes away people's moral authority. And this is precisely what Marx and Freud do with tr traditional Christian morality. All of, our, all of our sexual ethics, they think, for instance, are rooted for them in non-rational animal drives, the, the deep-seated instincts of inherited civilization or the laws of history in which we're non-consciously caught up. Lewis is not saying that they are correct in their interpretations, of course, but rather that their attempt to deflate traditional morality has everything to do with portraying it as arising from non-moral and non-rational sources. So everyone implicitly accepts the premise that if you move from non-morality to morality, the morality is a bit suspect. And now Lewis makes a second move, quote, but of course, what discredits particular moral judgments must equally discredit moral judgment as a whole. If the fact that men have such ideas as ought and ought not at all can be fully explained by irrational and non-moral causes, then those ideas are an illusion." End quote. Now Lewis immediately entertains an objection here. The naturalist, as it turns out, or so the claim goes, has a perfectly fitting way to account for morality. Through a process of natural selection, now we're talking evolution here, certain traits are conducive to survival and certain tend towards self-consumption. And it stands to reason that men who develop moral feelings that motivate for survival conducive actions are going to tend to win out over those who develop moral feelings that hinder survival and human flourishing. Lewis's retort to this is simple, quote, this account may, or may not, <laughs> explain why men do in fact make moral judgments. It does not explain how they can be right in making them, end quote. Y you see the problem there. This retort is using a theory about why morality naturalistically developed in a particular way to argue that we ought to be moral. Uh, but this confuses simply having moral feelings with the nature of oughtness itself. Naturalism necessarily reduces man's moral statements to, to being statements about one's personal feelings then. These are naturally selected for feelings that might be preferable to other feelings, but aren't what and as they are precisely because they are true or right in some larger sense. They're useful and therefore it is to our advantage to have those feelings, but your feelings aren't linking up to something broader that ultimately grounds morality itself. Now, Lewis admits that this is not flatly self-contradictory. Maybe morality just is a bunch of feelings that are useful to have. Nevertheless, Lewis claims that in real human moral discourse, this way of looking at morality goes out the window in people's actual behavior. What, what they're saying when they say this is wrong is not, I have some particular feeling, but rather that the accused is relating to the world in a way that, that violates its intrinsic goodness and objective goodness. Moreover, Lewis argues that the naturalist puts themselves in a peculiar bind here. Once a human realizes that their moral judgments are the deliverances of non-rational and non-moral forces, once you're kind of in on the cosmic joke, as it were, like, like Dorothy seeing behind the curtain of the wizard, 
it becomes difficult to think one has a reason to do one particular thing over against another. Once we stand at some critical distance from our moral selves, it's, it's, it's hard for moral experience to take on the weight that it classically has. And, and it's worth noting that Lewis is not making the more popular claim here that if atheism is true, there's no basis for morality of any kind. He's provisionally entertaining the possibility. Uh, he's provisionally entertaining the possibility that naturalists might be able to account for morality in a kind of behaviorist way. That is, they can give some reasons for thinking that humans were kind of non-rationally shaped to have these particular ethical feelings for maybe in a survival advantage or whatnot. Nevertheless, the experience of human morality cannot be divorced from discourse about morality. There's a, there's a reciprocal relationship there. It's not that if we speak natural, it's not that if we speak naturalistically about our conscience, we'll just tomorrow, you know, throw out all our moral instincts or something. However, the way that you do talk about and think about your moral instincts will progressively cultivate them in a particular direction. And it's eventually going to be very difficult, argues Lewis, for naturalists to guide us in those kinds of moments. So he writes, quote, there can be no reason for trying to whip up and encourage the one impulse rather than the other. He's, he's speaking of a particular moral decision here. Not now that I know what they both are. The naturalist must not destroy my reverence for conscience on Monday and expect to find me still venerating it on Tuesday. So morality sure seems to work in this more classical way when we're not thinking about it. Uh, and just like reason then, there's a case to be made that morality, sometimes called practical reason, requires suspension in something beyond nature, at least as it phenomenologically kind of manifests to us. Uh, interestingly, in fact, some atheists actually think it's kind of a naturalistic accident that we've become naturalists and that it's kind of screwing us up. That is, they think that the, the masses, at least, should remain fairly religious precisely so that their conscience will have the kind of weight that sustains civilization and which kind of being in on the secret will not do. <laughs> Lewis, as it turns out, will have something to say about this in the next chapter. So, so okay, so far so good. There's some important objections to all this that Lewis will get into in the next chapter, but let's note where we are now though. Lewis has not even started arguing for miracles. He ends this chapter saying, quote, and with this we are almost ready to begin our main argument, but before doing so it will be, it, it will be, it will be well to pause for the consideration of some misgivings and misunderstandings which may have already arisen, end quote. So, so the main argument apparently starts in chapter seven. Before this, though, we will look at chapter six on uh, answers to misgivings. Uh, this is a very crucial chapter, and I look forward to going over it with you next time. So until then, we'll see you later.